One of the most famous fairy tales is the story of the emperor's new clothes. Many of you will know that story, but I'll recap it for those who may not have heard. The emperor is famed for his power and his wealth, and all around the land surrounding that empire, it's spoken of the greatness of his glory, and so it attracts many people who want to sell him stuff. You know, wonderful new furniture and, and, and lots of different things that make his glory even greater. But one day, a tailor shows up at the palace, and he says, I've got excellent credentials, and lots of people have really uh, valued the work that I do, and I can craft you the most magnificent robes you have ever seen. And so the king, of course, has his pride puffed up and says, well, I'd love to have the most magnificent robe uh, I've ever seen. And so he says to the tailor, go ahead. And the tailor says, well, I'm going to need some money for materials and, and compensated for my labor. So it's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of, uh, a lot of scratch, right? So, of course, the emperor says, sure, throws a lot of money at him. And, and after all of this time, he keeps throwing money and money and money. And then finally, he says to the tailor, we need, I need to show, show me the robe. And so the tailor says, sure. And so he, he goes into the, the emperor's chambers and he opens up a box and out he pulls out nothing. And when he pulls that nothing out and he says, here's the robe, this magnificent robe that I've made for you, emperor. And the emperor, of course, gasps thinking this, there's nothing there. But the emperor, of course, has paid a lot of money and this tailor is famous and he's announced to the whole kingdom that this tailor is going to create a magnificent robe for me. So he thinks, hey, there's something wrong with my eyes. Um, I'm going to put this on. And the tailor puts it on and says, oh, it looks magnificent, your majesty. It's fantastic. The, this robe will, will amaze everyone who sees it. So the emperor lets himself be convinced. And so he goes out into the palace courtyard to have all of his courtiers uh, look at his new, new clothing. And all of the courtiers gasp. And then they say, oh, majesty, fantastic robe, beautiful. I've never seen anything like it. It's incredible. You need to show the world. And so he arranges a parade to show off through the capital city. And, and there's horses and elephants and trumpets. And, and all the people are gathered to cheer on their emperor and his, his fantastic new clothes. And he walks and everybody gasps then thinks, you know, I don't want to lose my head. So I'm going to clap and say, what a wonderful robe this is. Except for one voice. A little boy is on his father's shoulders and he cries out, hey, that guy doesn't have any clothes on. Why we tell that story, why it's a famous story, is because it's a story about a danger to those who are leaders. And the danger to those who are leaders is that if their pride allows them never to be criticized, if they surround themselves with sycophants and yes-men who only tell them what they want to hear, it's only a matter of time before they're going to get into massive trouble because nobody has taught them the truth or told them the truth when they needed to hear it. Now, that's a story that has perpetual application, and it's often something we think about when we think about election time. Are we choosing an emperor with no clothes or an emperor with clothes to lead our country? But, of course, I tell you that not just because it's the election. It is also something that I think is highly relevant to the passage we have today. Over the past few weeks, I and then Josh last week and uh, have been preaching on second, uh, St. Paul's second letter to Timothy. And we're starting here at Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 10, and working our way through 4, verse 5. And this section of Paul's letter, I believe, is an incredible encouragement and also a challenge to Timothy to say, do not, as a leader, be the kind of guy who surrounds yourself with yes-men and sycophants. Instead, he praises Timothy because he says, Timothy, you have been a person who has valued the truth, valued your own formation of character so that you can become a person who is fully clothed and knows that you have faced challenges, you have helped, uh, the people around you have helped shape you into a better person. And Paul says that to Timothy as a leader in the ancient world, but I also think he says it to us as modern-day Christians, both to me as a leader in the church. 
and to everyone who calls Christ their Lord, to be people who are eager to hear a criticism when it needs to happen and not be the kind of people who surround themselves with yes-men and sycophants. So first off, why is it Paul's even concerned about this kind of thing? What is it that he's saying to Timothy? Well, it's helpful, as always, to sort of look at and read between the lines when you're listening to a letter writer, because oftentimes they sort of give a hint for why it is they feel it's really important to say it. And for Paul, it's really important here uh, when you look through partway through the letter. He says uh, in chapter 4 and in um, verse 3, it says, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. It's an interesting little phrase there. He says, people with itching ears. Many of you have had the delight of meeting my little doggie. Uh, she's not so little, she's about 60 pounds. And Indy is her name. She's a golden doodle. And I know she's really loyal. She follows me around all over the place. It can be a little bit annoying. When I want to have a little time to myself, there's always a dog at my feet. But one of the things I do enjoy doing is when I know I have a day here at the office where I don't have to make visits, and I expect to be doing some office work, I've got somebody to keep me company. But the door's always open, right? So sometimes people will pop in for one thing or another or to want to speak to me, and what always happens, as soon as she hears it, beep, 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 the door opens, the dog bolts right for the new person, and generally it's not to, to growl or to bark, but she goes to go and sniff them and to greet them. And they always say, what a wonderful dog, how friendly she is. And I say, well, that's true. But what I don't tell them is, I think I know the reason she's being so friendly. She's really hoping you're going to reach out and scratch her ears. She loves having her ears scratched. And so she will go, no matter how loyal she is most of the time to me, if you hold out your hand with either a doggy treat or the opportunity to itch her behind the ear, she's going to run right to you. Now, that's something that my doggy does. But I think that's the kind of imagery that Paul's using here. He's saying, like, if you've got an itch, and you really want it scratched, you might not be very particular about who's going to scratch, do that scratching, as long as somebody will do it. You know, uh, my dog is not particularly particular about who does it, and I think Paul says that there's a time where many people want to hear people who will say the things they want to hear them say, and they're not too particular sometimes about whether it's the truth or not. That's something that Paul talks about an awful lot throughout his letters, and we see it happening in the ancient world, but as I've often said, Many times those things that Paul talks about in the ancient world, as tough as they were, many times we in the modern world find it even more difficult because we have more opportunities for this kind of temptation than Paul had back in his day. If you think in the ancient world I want to listen to some speaker who's really going to tickle my ears instead of actually telling me the truth, you only had a limited range of people that could tell you that. Nowadays, of course, as everybody knows who's a preacher, is that you can come in on church one Sunday and decide, you know, I want a different flavor and go down to another church the next Sunday. Or you can say, you know, that sermon wasn't very good or the worship wasn't very good, so I'll listen to the radio and hear something different on the way home or podcast some preacher in Australia is a little bit better. Or I might go and watch a YouTube video when I get home and somebody who's telling me, well, actually, you can make lots of money with very little money down. Or you can get a preacher who tells you, you know, all you need to do is believe a little bit more and God's going to give you a fortune. There's lots of people out there who will tell you exactly what you want to hear, and there are more and more opportunities for us to hear them. There's a tremendous danger, Paul says, about this, and there's a tremendous danger that I think all of us know that there's lots of people out there trying to sell us something who don't really have our best interests at heart. But Paul says all of these things about Timothy because he knows that Timothy is not the kind of person who does this. 
and said why he praises Timothy, and I think one of the big reasons why there's such a warmth and familiarity that Paul has with Timothy throughout this letter is because he says, Timothy, you're not that kind of person. Instead, you are the kind of person who is stuck with me as your teacher and your mentor, even though I have not always been a person who is easy to follow. Listen to what Paul says as he begins this section of the letter in chapter 3, verse 10. This is Paul talking. He says, Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You might think, well, Paul is maybe saying, well, look, I got more credentials than these other losers out there uh, throughout the Mediterranean. You really picked the right horse with me because you've got lots of great things just right at my fingertips you're going to get. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, Timothy, you made the right choice because I say nice things. He says in verse 11, he goes on from saying, my steadfastness to my persecution, my suffering the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, that the Lord rescued me from all of them. He says, you have attached yourself to a guy who doesn't just walk on water and sort of always get things going well for him. You have attached yourself to a teacher who gets regularly persecuted, regularly turned away from, and regularly finds himself in really tough spots. And yet you, Timothy, have stuck with me. If you know anything about Paul's teaching, and you read through his letters, a lot of the New Testament are actually letters Paul wrote to other churches or to Timothy as protege or Titus or other situations, Paul can be pretty pretty strong in his criticism, pretty hard to take. Sometimes you read through some of his stuff and you sort of think, oh man, what's this guy on about? And yet Timothy doesn't leave him. Timothy says, you have been a faithful man and you have been a faithful person that I put my trust in as a leader because you are somebody who stuck with me as a person who you have learned from because of what I have taught and also a person you have learned from because of who I am. Later on, he says, it's not just me. It's not just following me as if I'm some kind of spiritual guru who alone has the answer. Later, he says this. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. He says, Timothy, not only have you followed me and listened to what I had to say and observed from my example and walked with me through the midst of persecutions and didn't run away, he says, and, and the Greek here is clear when it says, um, what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, it's not singular, it's plural. You learned from several people. Early in the letter, he said you learned a lot from your mom. You learn from your grandmother. And these are people we know are Jewish people who raised their son, although his mom was married to a Greek. She raised him to know the scriptures. And more than just knowing the scriptures and trusting from what your mommy tells you and your grandma tells you, he says, when you encountered the scriptures, you encountered something that has the capacity to shape you and to form you and to challenge you in profound ways. He says, they are not only, he says, that they are able to instruct you for salvation, in other words, to point you to Jesus, he says it's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You let yourself throughout your life be exposed to the scriptures which teach you, which rebuke you at times where you're wrong, which train you. And if anybody's ever been in training for a race or for something really important, training is difficult, it makes you sweat, it stretches your muscles, it makes you sore afterwards. You did not run away from a book, from a series of writings that not only encouraged and comforted you, but also buffeted you, challenged you, and called you to account at times where you're stepping outside of what you should be. 
The great praise that Paul has for Timothy is because he was the kind of person who said, what is most important to me is that I hear the truth, that I be shaped and formed into the image of Christ, which God made me to be. And that is something I place as a higher priority than having my ears itched by a preacher or teacher or way of life that simply pleases me and doesn't actually make me better. Now, that's a really hard thing for leaders to hear because it's calling people like me and others who take on leadership in the church to live according to that same example. Do I easily fall into a rut in my preaching and always preach what's safe and comfortable? Do I always uh, read things that are of no importance and simply watch Netflix? Or do I sometimes wrestle with writers who are a little bit hard to read and, and to listen to? Do I surround myself with people who can give me instruction and guidance? One of the things clergy sometimes do is they act like lone wolves. And, and instead of having a group of friends or of leaders or mentors that you can turn to and say, no, Stephen, I know you well enough to say these things really need to be tweaked and to listen to it. And I know, frankly, of course, as preachers, one of the great challenges that preachers have is that they know very well there's so many options out there. It can make it very hard sometimes to preach faithfully and well. Who holds you to account? One of the things, especially when I was earlier in my career as a preacher, was that, you know, you want to look for good preaching. You want to look for good models you can follow. And one of the things that was honestly very disappointing was how much bad preaching there is out there, right? I'm not saying that to say, well, look how good I is, and you're lucky at me and not somebody else. It is simply to say that many times you listen nowadays, of course, you can watch YouTube videos and that, and sometimes people with lots and lots of likes on YouTube, lots and lots of views, and they may be full of great passion, they may be humorous and wonderful delivery, but then you finish that and you think, oh, that was really pleasant, and then you can't really think of anything they said of substance. Doesn't that happen sometimes? And of course, sometimes you know that they don't even have the, the brilliant, brilliant delivery going for them. They're simply boring and no substance, right? How it is as a preacher, I hold myself to account and say, is this something that I want to do? Do I want to stand underneath these scriptures like Timothy did and let it correct me, let it encourage me, let it also sort of provoke me to doing what is right and faithful? That's a really serious charge that Paul gives to Timothy, and it's one he gives to everyone who leads in the church but if you're thinking, oh, right on, God laid in on those preachers and those leaders, they really need to learn something, I think that it's a tremendous mistake to believe it's only geared towards people who wear robes and collars. I think, in fact, it's also saying to you, as a congregation, to all of us who follow Jesus and can call him the Lord, the responsibility we have to also be people who want to hear the truth, even when it's hard. Of course, it's very right to lay into preachers who are spineless and squishy and all flash and no substance. But I've got to say, as a preacher, why it is that you're sometimes tempted to do that? It's because you feel, or you suspect, rightly or wrongly, that everybody you're listening to has got their car gassed up, and it's idling and ready to go, and you say something that people don't like, and there'll be a herd for the door out until they find somewhere else. I'm exaggerating a bit, but not much, because the reality is, is that one of the hardest things for preachers to do is to wrestle through tough passages that actually matter to people because you're so afraid of stepping on somebody's toes and somebody not wanting to hear something that you believe is true. Here's your responsibility as a congregation. Do you come to church each Sunday saying, I want to hear the truth? I have prepared myself to hear something that I don't want to hear because I'm also preparing myself to hear things I do want to hear. When I hear about the comfort and love of Jesus, I want to hear from somebody who is just as eager to tell me something that is wrong as they are to tell me something that is right, because this is a person who, in season and out of season, whether it's convenient or not, can be trusted to tell me the truth. 
And you want a preacher to be held to account, the first thing you need to do is to hold yourself to account and say, I want to be the kind of person who goes to church ready to hear the truth and to be changed, to be challenged, to be transformed, because my goal, like Timothy's goal, is not to be pleased or have my ears tickled. My goal is to be shaped and formed into the image of Christ. If you come to church and you find that this isn't happening, you have a responsibility, and I know I'm taking a risk here, but you have a responsibility to talk to me about it. I'm not speaking the truth to you? Ask me to speak the truth. When you're in Bible studies, when you're leading in different ways, when you encounter other teachers in the church, let them know and let yourself know there is a place in my heart to hear things I may not agree with because I want to hear the truth. But there's also a responsibility, I think, that St. Paul is talking about in the Scriptures, but how we read it and how we listen to it even outside of the church. Do you notice how Paul does say here about a really high view of Scripture? He says, verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God, used for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, etc. If you grew up in a certain church environment, especially a more evangelical church that really values you know, the, the Scripture, many times this is what's known as a proof text. Like anytime anybody sort of threatens the Bible or you think they're threatening the Bible, you pull out 2 Timothy 3.16, boom! This scripture is inspired by God, so don't mess with it. Do you know the problem is, how easy is it to say, wow, this thing's super valuable, so I'm going to keep it nice and safe on my shelf, and whenever I want a text to beat down my enemies with, I'm going to pull it off the shelf and I'm going to quote it. This is sort of like a spiritual Wikipedia, right? Just like, I don't even think about Wikipedia until I you know, don't know who starred in you know, as a droid in Star Wars or something, right? What do you do? You look it up on Wikipedia and you find out this obscure fact that you can't be bothered to incorporate in your daily life because it's not all that important. It's so easy to say, man, this, this book's so important, it's God-inspired, and not have it affect you in any way. In fact, when you look at this scripture, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's God-inspired, uh, God the Greek actually uses the word, uh, a cognitive of the word pneuma, if you know what a pneumatic drill is, a pneumatic drill is a drill that is powered by air, the movement of air. And that's from the Greek word pneuma, which is used in the scriptures in Greek to mean both spirit and wind or breath. To say it's God-inspired, it's God-breathed, it's breathed into by God. Do you know where that word is, or that uh, image is first used in the scripture? It's first used when God creates the heaven and the earth, and he takes dust to the earth, and he breathes into that dust, and it becomes the living being, the first human being. God breathes, we're told, into his nostrils, and Adam becomes alive. He doesn't become a wonderful crystalline sculpture that he puts on the shelf. He makes him a living being and gives him an important role in stewarding the earth. We say that the scripture is God-inspired, God-breathed. What are we saying? We're saying, yes, it's important to know what it is, but it's even more important to know what it's for. Why do you hold on to this? Why do you read it? It's not for winning Bible trivia contests. Why do you read this thing? So that you might be shaped in the ways that God wants you to be shaped. So your challenge in Scripture is to say, this is not just a book that I read. This is also a spirit that reads me while I'm looking at it. Am I looking at the Scriptures in Bible study when I hear it read in church, when I think about the Scriptures that somebody else may speak about? Am I entering into a relationship in which I let myself be challenged by what it says, or do I simply accumulate convenient facts? For doing that, we're selling it short because the Bible is not meant to be a Bible trivia book. What it's meant to be is a tool for our correction, our direction, our encouragement, for shaping us so that we become more and more like Christ is and more and more 
what God made us to be. That's our challenge in this passage. So what Paul says then happens when we do this. What happens when we really go all in and say, I want to be formed, I want to be shaped. I'm in, you sold me. I think we look at what he says to Timothy and we know what it's supposed to look like in our lives. This is what Timothy is urged as a result of the formation that goes on in his life. He says, As for you, always be sober and your suffering do the work of an evangelist and carry out your ministry fully. A little bit earlier, he says, in really underlining it by saying, you better believe this is important. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's judge of the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, like, I'm underlining this and I'm highlighting it with a big, bright highlighter. Don't miss this out. This is super important, Timothy. It says this, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time's favorable, unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with utmost patience in teaching. He doesn't say, Timothy, go off and be a jerk and nag everybody about the faith. He says, be patient. Be persistent. What is he telling to Timothy? He says, I have been something to you. I've been a character witness. I've been a person who's taught. I've been faithful. I've loved you. I've been patient with you. You have an important job. You want to have a witness to Christ? You want to be the person who carries the faith to another generation? Then be the kind of person that people look to and say, I trust you to tell me the truth, to love me and be patient when I fail. That is what a true advertisement for the gospel looks like. When he says, do the work of an evangelist, he doesn't mean join the Jehovah's Witnesses and stick your foot in the door. I think what he means instead is simply to say, do you now allow Christ to work in you, to work with you, so that when people look at you, they say, you know what? I see Jesus in that person pretty clearly. Because of the love they have for me, and because of their faithfulness and persistence, even when it's very easy to drop out. And man, it is easy to drop out when you're supposed to love your neighbor, because that is not an easy task. Yeah, you can do a nice thing. You can from time to time forgive them. But when you've got to live next to a person, it is a pretty tough thing day in and day out to practically love them. And it requires more than good feelings. It requires persistence. That is what we're called to be. To our children, to our parents, to our neighbors, to our friends. As I go out into this world, and honestly, I'm surrounded by a bubble of Christians, which is great. I love you all. But it's you who go out into this world and often have much more relationship with the people outside of the church than I do. And it is you who are witnesses to Christ, not because you're great at giving a sales pitch, but because you're great in revealing Christ in your life and the way you love and also in the way you're able to speak about Christ when that door is open. Here's the last thing, and I'll say it briefly, but it's an important thing to say. You probably noticed again and again through this passage how often Paul talks about persecution and suffering. But I'll say one of the most arresting and most difficult passages in all of Scripture is this, verse 12, chapter 3. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's my guarantee to you. Maybe we should put it on our visitor brochure. Come join the church and you will be persecuted. Well, in all honesty, it is difficult to be a faithful person in this world. It's difficult because sometimes people will be threatened. You're a loving and forgiving person and sometimes it makes people not like you. Hard to believe, but I can think even of times of people that I've known and canceled in previous situations in the church. They come from a bad family background and they start getting their life together and you know who the most difficult people are in their lives. The rest of their family tears them down and says, who do you think you are? Are you better than us? Sometimes simply minding your own business and trying to live right can provoke anger. But I'll tell you the most difficult thing I find and maybe this is the most difficult thing you find. It is hard being consistent and persistent when you feel it doesn't make much difference, right? 
there are times where you go and you try to work really hard and as a clergy person, I know many of my own clergy friends will say the same thing. I, I think I'm trying to be faithful. I think I've been preaching well. I think I've been doing what God wants me to do. I'm trying to live a godly life and I just don't see it growing. I wish I could say I've got growing budget year after year. I've got more and more people year after year. And so many times it doesn't have a one-to-one ratio. It doesn't seem to work. In our own daily lives, what happens? I'm loving my kids so much and yet they don't change their attitude. I'm trying so hard to reconcile with my spouse. I'm trying so hard to be more patient with my mom or my neighbor and they don't seem to want it. Be assured that you're going to run into that if you want to follow Christ and live in a godly way. You are going to run in to the persecution, not necessarily from the world attacking you, but the persecution of your own heart that says, give up, what's the point? It's so hard. All I can really say from this is to say what Paul says as he comes to the end of this letter, if you go a little bit further. He says, verse 6, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved to me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'm not a racer. As you can tell from my physique, I've never run a marathon. But you know what? I can tell many people have a difficult time when they run marathons, but they end the marathon because they know they can't see that finish line. They know it's far, far away, and they're halfway through it thinking, man, I can't do this. What do they do? They know there's a finish line, but then they start saying, I'm not going to think about anything other than putting one foot more in front of the other. One more foot, one more foot, one more foot. And then they find the finish line appears. That's, I think, in a lot of the ways Christian life is. Just remember that there's somebody running alongside you. And when you uh, stumble, when you fall, he's picking you back up. Jesus is there like they do in a marathon, handing you a Gatorade, saying, attaboy. And the same Jesus is the person who's run the race for us. He's the one in the end. None of us are going to make it to the finish line on our own. When we stumble and fall, he's the one in the end who will pick us up, carry us across. And like Paul says, all he really wants to know is, did you fight the good fight? Did you run the race well? Well, Jesus is going to bring you to the end. Trust in him. Let him know that you love him and let him know that you understand his love for you. And as hard as it is and as disappointing as it is, he's going to be there for you. Fight the good fight. Simply know that at the end of your life, you can say, honestly, because I've known Jesus and tried to follow him, I'm a better person. I'm more like Christ wanted me to be, and that's what's made it all worth it. Let's pray.